Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 80, Foreknowledge, Freedom, and Randomness. If God, in eternity, foreknows every last thing that you are ever going to do, how can you be free to do or not do various things? People have wrestled with this question since ancient times, and a version of the question even goes back to the great Greek philosopher Aristotle. In today's episode of the Trinity's podcast, you'll hear a presentation that I gave on October 25th, 2014, at a philosophy conference called the Randomness and Foreknowledge Conference. I have to warn you, this is a talk to philosophers, and I'm covering a lot of information too quickly, and I'm presupposing too much background here for a popular audience. But I present it to you in the hope that it might be useful to many of you. You'll surely want to check out the YouTube version of this talk because it has the slides that I'm referring to, and I've added a little bit more information there to help you follow what's going on. Here's a little bit of background. Many Christians, when you pose the question, how can we be free if God with certainty foreknows everything we're going to do, they recycle an answer given in ancient times by a couple of the church fathers, and that is this, God's foreknowledge doesn't cause our future free actions. Rather, the future free actions cause the foreknowledge. But arguably, it's not really a question of what causes what. The question is rather, if a million years ago, or in timeless eternity, God foreknew your future free actions, doesn't that logically imply that you will do certain things? But if, as of now, you will do certain things, then it looks like there's not a possibility of your not doing those things. And if your entire life is like this, then it looks like there isn't any time at which you have any control over how your life goes. And so it's not clear that you can be held morally praiseworthy or blameworthy for anything that you do. In ancient times and down through the Middle Ages, a number of Christian and also Jewish and Islamic philosophers wrestled with this question, and they came up with a bunch of creative responses to it. When I was a PhD student in philosophy at Brown University in the 90s, I took a course in which we explored these various theories, starting with medieval philosophy, and I found that none of them worked. They would promise that they could reconcile divine foreknowledge and human freedom, but when you actually tried to work it out, it failed. At least, that's the conclusion that I came to. Consequently, I became what's called an open theist. An open theist is someone who thinks that, yes, God is omniscient, but God has decided to give us libertarian free will, and in doing that, he left the future somewhat open. He can settle in advance as much of the future as he wants, and he can take away or limit our freedom in any way that he wants, but given that he has given us some two-way control over how our lives go, then to that extent, the future remains a realm of possibilities. In other words, it can still turn out in different ways. So, for example, God doesn't foreknow with certainty that you will freely sin tomorrow, given that as of now, there's no fact of the matter about whether you sin tomorrow. 
And on the other hand, he doesn't foreknow with certainty that you won't sin tomorrow. He knows, of course, all the possibilities and all the probabilities. But the idea is that by leaving things indeterminate, by leaving them as mere possibilities, he can't then also know them as actualities. A different way to put it is that if it is definitely going to happen, then the objective probability of it would be one. Well, if the objective probability of some event is one, then the objective probability of that event not happening is zero. But if your whole life is like that, then you never have any two-way control over what happens. Is this limiting God's foreknowledge? Well, no, God is still essentially omniscient. He knows at any given time all the truths that there are to know. But the underlying metaphysical view is that as of now, there is no one set of events which is the complete future henceforth. I came to the view back then, and I still hold the view now, that even if divine foreknowledge doesn't rule out free will, still, for truth would rule out free will, because everything would be settled in advance. So in this brief, opinionated overview, I talk about some recent developments in the literature, I take the opportunity to diss various rival views, and hope that you can learn something from it. Welcome, thanks for coming. I kind of intended this talk to be sort of a review of the literature, but then I found I had so much to say that I won't do that very much. If I have enough time, I'll tell you some things not to waste your time on. This is how you can get worried about the compatibility of God's knowledge and future free actions. If N means it's now unchangeable that, then, uh, and, and that's defined as given the course of history up till now, in principle, no one could do something to prevent it, then, you know, now unchangeably God knows that you will choose to lie tomorrow, and now unchangeably if God knows that P, then P, right? No one can do anything to prevent that from being true. It follows that now unchangeably you will lie tomorrow. And a lot of people have uh, fancy theological moves they make uh, regarding God and his knowledge and eternity to try to answer this problem. But there's kind of a growing consensus in the literature that the deeper and harder to deal with problem is really this one. So now unchangeably it's true that you will choose to lie tomorrow. Now unchangeably if it's true that P, then P. So it follows that now unchangeably you will choose to lie tomorrow. So just for truth seems to be as problematic as foreknowledge. And some of the things that you might want to say about God and how God exists and how God knows to get around foreknowledge concern aren't going to help you with this. So here's a more complete argument. Either necessarily it's true that you will choose to lie tomorrow or necessarily it's false that you will choose to lie tomorrow. Again, we're talking necessary in the sense of now unchangeable, that is inevitable given the course of history up till now. And that premise would be supported by the principle of bivalence, that every claim is true or false, and the necessity of the present, that if something is present, it's too late to be prevented. Second premise, uh, necessarily, if it's true, the P, then P. Third premise, necessarily, or now unchangeably, if it's false, the P, then not P. And so then either, it follows that either you will choose to lie tomorrow, that's necessary, or necessarily you will not choose to lie tomorrow. And then it follows that it's not up to you whether or not you lie tomorrow. At least you're going to grant that follows if you're a libertarian. 
And it strikes me that there's really very few non-point missing responses to this argument, and I think only a couple of them are even close to being viable. One response is to say that premise one is false, and there are two different reasons, uh, two different lines taken there. One is that because both disjuncts are false, it's false that you will lie, it's false that you won't lie. That's a view that I'm going to argue against in a minute. That's taken by people like Alan Rhoda and Patrick Todd, who are here at this conference. Or you can say that one is false because the principle of bivalence is false. And that statements about, some statements about future contingents are neither true nor false. That's the view that I prefer. You could take the Occamus line that the, that the present is not now unchangeable. That would be another reason to deny one. You could try to argue that 5 doesn't follow from 1 through 4, and there are two reasons why you might think that. One reason is that you think this, this isn't true, that if necessarily P and necessarily if P then Q, then necessarily Q. That seems like a hopeless strategy to me. That just does seem true. It's true for about any kind of necessity, I think. And you might think that 5 doesn't follow from 4 just because you don't believe in libertarian free will. I don't really have much to say about that because I think compatibilism is a wretched subterfuge. <laughs> Not only because Kant said so, but because you can show it. Some fundamental intuitions that I have, and I guess philosophers disagree about some of these. One is that it's too late in principle to change what is past or present. You know, Aristotle says there's one thing God can't do. He can't make something that's been done to not have been done. I think that's right. I think it applies to the present too. So I say fooey on soft facts. I never met an example of a soft fact that I thought was plausible. Bill Hasker has made this point in print. The absolutely only reason that anybody believes in soft facts is because they want to have this as a solution to the problem of divine foreknowledge. If it wasn't for that, everybody would be, be still agreeing with Aristotle. So if you say that, you know, somebody who freely decides to kill Dale this year makes his last birthday to have been his final birthday, well, it wasn't my final birthday back then. No, that's just wrong. They don't bring something about in the past, I don't think. I think Bill Craig gave this example similar to this by freely composing. Mozart brings it about that his parents gave birth to a composer. Now, he wasn't a composer back then, and he wasn't destined to be a composer, unless God controlled it that way, but then um, he wouldn't have been free to avoid his uh, destiny as a composer. More fundamental intuitions, we sometimes possess an unconditional ability to choose or not choose some course of action. You can't choose a course of action for which you have no motive. We're morally responsible for some choices, and this implies that we have unconditional two-way abilities to choose. And I also have an intuition that there aren't varieties of truth and falsity. And um, I'm not going to get into these, but there are a number of technical solutions to this argument that depend on different kinds of truth. Random events, I'm just going to explain briefly why I'm not worried by the issue of randomness. Random events can mean many different things. It could mean an event that's not forced to occur or an event that doesn't have a sufficient event cause. It can mean an event that's unexpected or unexplainable. And it can mean also an event that isn't controlled by anyone. 
And free choices are random in the first and second senses, but I say not in the third. And neither the first or second implies the third. I think that there are events called exercises of two-way active power, and the terminus of them is a choice. And I don't have time to develop my views on free will that much right now, but my view is that they are plausibly thought to be intrinsically controlled. So they're by definition random in the sense of not having a sufficient event cause, but they're intrinsically controlled in that just being that kind of event, an exercise of two-way active power, they are necessarily as that kind of event under the control of the one in whom the event occurs. So, you know, suppose T1 is the present and I have the two-way active power to choose to lie or to refrain from choosing to lie. This isn't real. These are just possibilities. You use a branching structure to represent possibilities. And I'm a presentist, so I think those really are to be cashed out in terms of powers of things that presently exist. But what I do when I exercise my power is I bring it about that I choose to lie and I bring it about that I am no, it's no longer possible for me to refrain from choosing to lie at T2. There's objective change in the flow of time, but there's also change in which things are possible and impossible at, at various times. And I think that if you describe two-way active powers, uh, if you describe exercises of two-way active powers more, then I think it's plausible that they're controlled whenever they occur. So you have to have, I think, a motive to, to lie and a motive to not lie. Uh, you have to, I think, be aware of both of those possibilities. It has to occur to you that you could do either one. And there's something contrastive, because of that awareness, there's something contrastive about the exercise of two-way power. You're always bringing this about rather than that. Anyway, I probably shouldn't say much more about free will. This is the big assumption I find at work in many philosophers when they're discussing this issue of so-called logical arguments for fatalism. It's that there is now, or omnitemporally or timelessly, a complete future. And in some of the technical literature, they started calling this the thin red line. Like if you think of the branching structure, there's one branch that's picked out somehow in advance, and that's just what will happen. The branches are all the possible future outcomes, and the thin red line traces a course through what will actually happen. And you see this assumption reflected in people's language. They say things like, open theists hold that God lacked knowledge of the future. That seems to presuppose that there is a fully determinate future. Uh, or they say God's eternal beliefs about what you will freely do tomorrow depend on what you will freely do tomorrow. So they assume that there are facts about what you will freely do tomorrow. Why do so many people make this assumption? I don't think there's a simple answer. Sometimes people imagine time as a fourth dimension. There's just a wholly determinate future in the fourth dimension. If you believe in flowing time, if you're an atheist, especially if you're a presentist, it's just wrong to imagine time as a fourth dimension. You can use it for certain government purposes, but you're not supposed to take that analogy very seriously. Some are just committed to scientific or theological claims that imply eternalism, that all past events and future events have the same ontological status as present events. They're all real. Hasty generalization, perhaps, that some statements about the future are true or false, so they all are. 
or you just stick with a few plausible examples. Now this one I kind of don't get. There's this big worry about logical heterodoxy, especially the assumption of bivalence. And my point about this is that most of us already believe that there is no one formal system that can express all the truths we think there are and that can show the validity of all the inferences we think are valid inferences. So think about the kind of logic you teach in an introduction to deductive logic class. That logic can't express stuff like this. You know, if necessarily P, then necessarily necessary. It's necessary that P in the logical sense of possibility or necessity. Or consider that in that standard logic that we teach, we just take tense completely out of it. We just choose to deal with a timeless present all the time as if tense doesn't matter or is eliminable. And of course, a lot of people don't think that tense is eliminable. They think there are tensed truths. And so in you know, Arthur Pryor's, uh, one, one of his tense logic, he would have a sentence like this. If Q, then it will be the case that it was the case that Q. And so Q there is present tense. And arguably that doesn't mean the same thing as a timeless equivalence. And so, you know, what's the big deal if there are a class of propositions for which bivalence fails? Look, when you're arguing most things in philosophy, you're not going to be dealing with future contingents or other domains where arguably bivalence fails. So then you can still, you know, use indirect proof and things like that. And I think there are other reasons to believe in claims that are neither true nor false. I'll explain my intuition for this in a second, but I think that's the right thing to say about the present king of France is bald. Arguably, it, t it lacks what it takes to be true or false. Or sentences like this, this sentence is false. You, know, you might think, well, it can't be true and it can't be false. Well, right, why, not, why can't it just be neither? Or uh, counter-possibles, if two plus two or three, I would be the Pope. People decide just for reasons of theoretical neatness to treat these as true. I don't think that's true. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's false. I mean, if you can put it in possible worlds term, you're supposed to evaluate these by going over to a possible world where the antecedent's true and seeing if the, the consequence is true, but there ain't no such world, right? So... It doesn't look like it has what it takes to be either true or false, arguably. Also, I think um, because of our interest, maybe our obsession with causal determinism, we just choose to think that causal determinism is the only threat to human freedom. And we just refuse to countenance that there could be other things that might threaten it. And the real threat, I think, is that something has already picked out a complete future. Alan Rhoda in his work talks about a future specifier. Well, one future specifier is that at all times, every event has a sufficient cause that forces it to occur. So if that's a necessary truth or if it's true at all times, there's your future specifier is determinism. But it could possibly be something else. People like Bill Craig clearly think this, for instance, even though he's on paper he's supposed to be a presentist, but he clearly believes in an actual future, and he just thinks, well, if you have an actual future, but you don't have sufficient event causes for all the events, then that's good enough. You know, just loosen it up, as it were. But, I mean, one way to put it is, look, uh, if it's all loosened up like that on the bottom row, 
you know, the objective probability of what you're going to do next is always one or zero. It is or it isn't going to happen. There aren't in-betweens, arguably. If you don't assume that there is a single, fully determinate, actual future, then that's how I come to my view. So if somebody says at T1 that, that you will lie at T2, I just think that let's look at T2. And of course, really, you're talking about the causal powers of things in the present. But let's just for simplicity of exposition, let's talk about as if we can consider T2 as a reality. Then at T2, it's possible that you lie and it's possible that you don't lie, but we don't just find you lying there, in which case it would be true. You'd have your lying in both of these. And we don't just find you're not lying there, we find a mix. And so it looks like it doesn't have what it takes to be true and it doesn't have what it takes to be false right now. And of course, I am assuming that it makes sense to talk about statements being true and false at a time. You know, it becomes true that I lie at T2, if that's a choice I make, if, if uh, we go, if, you know, the present, so to speak, moves from T1 to T2, then I've made it true. So in my view, a statement that Dale lies at T2 expressed tenselessly, it was neither true nor false at T1, and then it became true if indeed that's what I choose to do. So my view is that you should think about true as fitting with what is. And I don't think you have to commit to any heavy truth maker theory here. It's just that truth supervenes on being, something very general like that. There's no difference with respect to truth without a difference with respect to reality, that kind of idea. And false is misfitting what is. So you look at what is and what you said, uh, there's a misfit between the two of them. The rival to this view among open theists, as I mentioned before, Patrick Todd, who's here at the conference, and Alan Rhoda, and they're following up on a suggestion by A.N. Pryor, Arthur Pryor. And I think other people, um, also the neo-Molinist account that was very nicely presented in the previous session, that presupposes the all-false view. I claim that they're kind of giving a, a weird disjunctive definition of falsity where falsity is mismatching with what is or just failing to be true. And so then they want to say that uh, what this guy says is false, that I will lie at T2. And if someone said you're not going to lie at T2, that would be false too. And so I have two objections to this. This disjunctive account of falsity is come up with only to preserve bivalence. And um, otherwise, you wouldn't think about falsity in that way. The other objection is this, and I don't think this has been dealt with adequately by the proponents of the all-false view. This is a, a point that I stole from Reichenbach and uh, J.R. Lucas and other smarter people than me. And it was in my 2007 paper called Three Roads to Open Theism. You have to distinguish between a simple future statement, which is purely about the future or perhaps some future portion of the future. You have to distinguish that from the posterior present tense. And the difference is the posterior present tense is also making a point about today. So uh, using the classic example, if you say a sea battle will occur tomorrow, the simple future is that you're only talking about tomorrow. And the posterior present is 
You're saying that a sea battle will occur tomorrow, and today is a day preceding a sea battle. Or to put it differently, in my example of lying, uh, as of now, it's settled that you will lie at T2. So it's, it is a point about time two, but it's also a point about time one. There are complex tenses like this. This isn't the only complex tense. There's other ones. Ten years ago, I had been married for 12 years. That's another complex tense. My point is that the all-false view works just fine for the posterior present. It isn't settled that you will lie or that you won't lie. So both of those are false. I think that's right. What the all-false people do is that they just ignore these. They ignore statements in that tense. But it is a tense that we can use. You can't just say it doesn't exist. People say that, look, I'm, just, I'm purely talking about the future. I'm not saying it's, def it's definitely going to happen or that the present you know, must evolve that way. I'm only talking about the future. I think that it's concerning the simple future that you have to say they're neither true nor false. The all-false view works just fine for the posterior present tense. Yeah, in the simple future view, these are contradictories, and so one has to be, if one's true, the other's false. If one's false, the other's true. So that's why they, they can't be either. The posterior present, they're only contraries, so they can both be false. Now, Alan Rhoda and Patrick Todd give this analogy. For some reason, Patrick Todd thinks that all philosophers are all the smart ones except the Rossalian uh, view about the present king of France. And the Rossalian view is this, that the form looks like this, that just king of France is bald, simple predication. But really, the real form of the present king of France is bald is this. There is an X which is the king of France and which is bald. It's an existential claim. It's asserting that the king of France exists. No, that's just not right. It's not asserting the king of France exists. It's only assuming it. The issue of his existence isn't under discussion at the moment. And if you agree with that, then it turns out that they really are contradictories. But they're contradictories such that I claim there's not enough reality to judge them as true or false. So similarly, a person asserting the simple future tense, you will lie tomorrow, typically assumes, but does not thereby assert that there is an actual future, part of which consists in you lying tomorrow. <clears throat> the subject matter is what you'll do tomorrow. They're not making some point in philosophy of time. If they say Hillary Clinton's going to win the next presidential election, they haven't thereby just asserted that there exists a determinate actual future, or the future is determinate in that respect as of now, either one. And they'll look at you funny if you claim that's what they're saying. Rightly so. As I mentioned, I think that the past and present are unchangeable in principle, and uh, I never saw an example of a soft fact that I agreed with. And I also think it's kind of disconcerting that there isn't any settled upon, agreed to definition of the soft fact, hard fact distinction. And I think that's because there ain't no such distinction to be made out there. So there's no guidance on how to draw that distinction. It's a distinction without a difference. Uh, so I, I'm thinking that we could maybe argue like this. And I'm assuming some things about philosophy of time that I think are starting to be a bit of a consensus so I think that if libertarian freedom 
is true, then presentism has to be true. That's a controversial premise that I'll come back to. This I don't think is controversial, that Occamism implies the falsity of presentism. The Occamist thinks that you will lie is true solely because you will lie. And so there is the future event of your lying. This is part of the Occamist distinction between statements solely about the future and statements that are about the future and other times. So this second has been argued, for instance, by Alicia Finch and Mike Ray in a recent paper. But I've seen it in several people. Uh, I think it's starting to be widely agreed on. Um, but then look, if, if one and two are correct, then it would follow that Occamism is inconsistent with libertarian freedom, which would really make the Occamist mad, or at least some of them. And then just directly follows that if libertarian freedom is true, then Occamism is false. And my assumption there is we have more reason to believe in libertarian freedom than we do to believe Occamism. Our reasons to believe libertarian freedom are our own experience, our belief in moral responsibility, and our practice of deliberation, the fact that all compatibilist theories are terrible. So one is the key premise. Is there a way to argue for it? One way to argue for it might be this. You say, well, there's three going views in philosophy of time, presentism, eternalism, or growing block theory. But growing block theory is less popular. I find convincing some objections to that given by Trenton Merricks in a recent piece. So then if libertarian theory is true, then it'd be either presentism or eternalism. But then if libertarian theory is true, then eternalism is false. So that would be supporting um, if libertarian freedom is true, then presentism is true. But I don't, uh, I don't think I could fully make the case for premise one yet, so maybe, I don't know if you'll have any thoughts about that. Here's one thing not to waste your time on. Molinism as a solution to the problem of divine foreknowledge and future contingents. It totally doesn't solve that problem. Some of its smartest proponents, like Bill Craig, totally affirm this. The reason they're interested is they think it gives the mechanics of divine providence. John Martin Fisher has argued really convincingly that it only presupposes that foreknowledge and future free actions are compatible. It does nothing whatever to show that they are. And I think that's right, but I used to be confused about this. So now I'm not confused, thanks to John, thanks to John Martin Fisher and others. And um, so, for, for instance, Bill Craig, he adopts an Occamist view. He thinks that you can make something to have been the case. This is a lazy cop-out that logical arguments are a waste of time. You know, how could anything about logic uh, possibly threaten free will? Well, I, already, I just showed you how. It's no good just to sort of object to the idea in general. I found this attitude pretty common among philosophers. Sometimes it's because they think there's a modal fallacy that's being made. Thinking that something special about God is going to help, it might help with the theological argument, but it looks like it's not going to help at all with the argument based on truth. This is an old chestnut. I think it goes back to Occam, but it's in other medievals that the logical arguments for fatalism make this fallacy. They confuse, he, Occam says, the necessity of the consequence with the necessity of the consequent. And of course, this is a fallacy. 
if necessarily p and q and p, it doesn't follow that necessarily q. Right, but no, nobody's making this fallacy. Even Aquinas knew that, that they, they put a necessary right there. He very clearly says this in his discussion in the Summa Theologiae. So we should stop accusing people of this. If you deny that foretruth causes future actions, well, that seems right. But nobody's ever said that. Not really. Jonathan Edwards famously makes this point. It can entail that you lack freedom, and it can entail that a certain action occurs without causing that action. I think it's a waste of time to say that open theists are redefining God or even denying omniscience. Really, uh, the logical uh, and philosophy of time discussion is really a discussion about human freedom and time. It's primarily a discussion about what kind of cosmos God made. And that has logical implications for what kind of being God is. But it's not all and only about, you know, what's the right way to think about God. Nor is it just trendy, kind of, you know, getting a more fashionable God concept. There's nothing trendy about the idea of libertarian freedom or about the idea of an open future. You know, it's arguably akin to common sense. I don't think it's uh, worth our time to worry that, about the now unchangeability of the present. And the reason is, yes, I think the present is now unchangeable, but if I have just exercised my two-way active power to bring about my present choice, the deed's already done. I've already exercised my control over this choice. And so now that it's, it's inevitable, it isn't a threat to anything. But there is a recent article arguing that if divine foreknowledge rules out future free actions, it rules out present free actions, and that's stupid. So therefore, we shouldn't think it rules out future free actions. And then here's one more bad idea. I don't know if you've encountered this one. To say that it's true and false right now that you will lie tomorrow. Instead of truth value gaps for future contingents, they call this gluts. This is a kind of philosophy I don't like. It's, it's, hey, look what I can do. Look what I can get away with. Unencumbered by, you know, concern with what's real. So you're accepting that there are true contradictions about future contingents. Well, I just don't think you should think there are any true contradictions. With apologies to Graham Priest, I don't take this seriously, that option. Anyway, thank you for listening. I know it was kind of scattershot. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.